Welcome to the Ideas That Change the World podcast with Rabbi Manus Friedman, where we make sure your life will be changed for the better, one idea at a time. Rabbi Friedman is the number one voice of clarity on moral and social issues. So what are we waiting for? Let's go change the world. Perkevos, beginning of chapter 6, page 290, uh, 291 to be exact. <laughs> The secret to understanding Perkeovos, as we've mentioned many times, is that everything in Perkeovos, all instruction, all wisdom, is meant for people who are going beyond the letter of the law. This is not to inform you of the law or to encourage you to keep the law. This is for people who are going beyond the letter of the law. And in that light, we've got to rethink most of what we read here. Because at first glance, it seems to be very basic and very simple stuff. So let's take a look at the beginning of chapter 6. The sage is taught this chapter in the language of the Mishnah. In other words, this was an addendum to the Mishnah. So Perkyovos really has five chapters. This sixth chapter is not Mishnah per se, but it was written by the same sages. It just wasn't included in what constitutes the book of Mishnah. And this, too, was written in the language of the Mishnah, which means every word is concise, carefully chosen, and so on. Blessed is he who chose them and their teachings. In other words, thank God for the sages. Now, Rabbi Meir said, whoever occupies himself with the study of Torah for its own sake merits many things. Furthermore, He is worth that the whole world shall be created because of him. He is worthy for the whole world to be created just for him. Now, what are these many things? He is called friend, beloved. He loves God. He loves God's beings. He brings joy to God. He brings joy to men, to humans. The Torah garbs him with humility and fear of God, makes him fit to be a tzaddik, a chassid, upright and faithful. It keeps him far from sin, brings him near to good deeds. People derive from him the benefit of counsel, wisdom, insight and strength. As it is stated, counsel and wisdom are mine. I am understanding, strength is mine. That's the Torah speaking. So whoever studies Torah has all that. The Torah bestows upon him royalty and authority, discerning judgment. The secrets of Torah are revealed to him, and he becomes like a fountain which flows with an ever-increasing strength and like a never-ceasing stream. He becomes modest, patient, and forgiving of insult to himself. The Torah makes him great and exalts him above all things. Number of questions. Rabbi Meir says, whoever occupies himself with the study of Torah for its own sake merits many things. And then he gives us the list of all the many things. Well, why do you have to say it? Just give us the list. So to say you merit many things and then give us the list, why don't we just give us the list and we'll see that there are many particularly when in other places in the Mishnah, it says 
If you do such and such, you get ten virtues, and then they tell you the ten virtues. Why doesn't he give us the number here? If he doesn't trust us to count. <laughs> so it says many, doesn't tell us how many, and not necessary at all. Just give us the list of things. So it would have made perfect sense to say, whoever studies Torah for its own sake is called friend, beloved, he loves God, he loves God's creatures, he brings joy to God. So what does this mean? He merits many things. If the Mishnah is so precise, these are unnecessary words. Second thing. Some of these virtues aren't special at all. Fear of God? If you study Torah for its own sake, you merit the fear of God? You've got to have the fear of God even if you don't study Torah at all. Said it in earlier Mishnah. If there's no fear of God, then there is no Torah. So there's got to be fear of God first. So this doesn't seem to be beyond the letter of the law. This is minimum requirement. Let me tell you a story. Every night in the bedtime Shema, in the Siddur, it says that we're supposed to say certain prayers. One of them is that I forgive anyone who angered me or annoyed me during the day. Let me give you the exact wording on that because it's helpful in, in our Mishnah here. You don't go to sleep angry, resentful, carrying a grudge. Every night you clean the slate before going to sleep by saying, I forgive whoever uh, was not nice to me. Let's just find the exact wording here. Uh, on page 141, if you want to. Master of the universe, I hereby forgive anyone who has angered or vexed me or sinned against me, either physically or financially, against my honor or anything else that is mine, whether accidentally or intentionally, inadvertently or deliberately, by speech or by deed, in this incarnation or in any other. That's a pretty wide sweep. You know? I forgive everybody, everything, even from my past life. And you say that every night. <laughs> if you've already forgiven everyone from your past life, they couldn't have gotten you angry today. <laughs> so you've already forgiven them. Why do you have to say this every night? But the real question is this. For a chosid, it seems to be inappropriate. It's not nice. It implies that you did take offense, you were insulted, even, as he says, even if it was done accidentally and inadvertently, you still took offense, you got insulted, your ego is way out of control, but by the end of the day, you've calmed down and now you're ready to forgive. That's very arrogant. I mean, it seems humble. Oh, I forgive everybody. What does it mean you forgive everybody? It means you were offended and you now have the chutzpah. <laughs> On top of the arrogance, you now have the chutzpah to say, I forgive you. That is not the way of a chassid. So somebody once asked his teacher, what does this mean? How can you walk around all day puffed up with with self-importance, and then at night become the big tzaddik and say, oh, I forgive everybody. <laughs> so, so the answer he was given was, 
That's why we say whether it was in this incarnation or in another incarnation. Who knows, in a past incarnation, maybe you weren't a chassid. And then you got angry. But if you're a chassid, really, it doesn't, it's not nice. What are you angry about? What is there to forgive? Because somebody pointed out your weaknesses and your, and your failings? They're your weaknesses. They're your failings. What are you upset about? So, if we go beyond the letter of the law, it's not like, you insulted me, but I'm big enough to forgive you. That's not nice. And it's certainly not true. In truth, we have no reason to be insulted in the first place. Because there's really almost nothing anyone can say about us that isn't a little bit true. So what are you insulted about? Somebody noticed what you are. What are you angry about? You know, stranger, when a person can say about himself, oh, don't, don't rely on me. I'm, I, no, I can't, I, you cannot depend on me. And then five minutes later, somebody says, him? I wouldn't depend on him for anything. You're insulted. You said it yourself. You know it yourself. What are you insulted? Nobody else is allowed to state the obvious? What are we offended by? Particularly, if we're focused on our purpose in life, we exist for one reason, and that is to bring light to the world. What are you getting offended about? What is it, your world? So if we're busy doing our job, you don't get offended in the first place. And therefore, there is no need for you to forgive anybody. That's called beyond the letter of the law. By the letter of the law, if somebody offends you in public, you can sue him. Because, in fact, it hurts. So, legally speaking, technically speaking, it doesn't matter whether you should be hurt or shouldn't be hurt. You know, it's like somebody gives you a whack on the, a friendly whack on the back and almost knocks the wind out of you, and you say, what, what's the matter with you? You're violent. He says, no, no, I'm not. That shouldn't have hurt. Well, maybe it shouldn't have, but it did. So legally, technically, yes, it did hurt. Should it hurt? That's not acceptable in a court of law. It hurt. So by the letter of the law, if you insult somebody and they're offended, you're guilty of, a, of an offense. But if you go beyond the letter of the law, there is no reason to be offended. It's silly. And it's even sillier to be offended every day and every day say, uh, okay, by the end of the day, I've gotten over it. Well, if you can get over it by the end of the day, how about get over it right away? Why save it all day? And if you can get over it right away, what are you getting upset about in the first place? So here's one of the questions in our Mishnah. If a person studies Torah for its own sake, he forgives those who insult him. This, this is not a compliment. This is not somebody beyond the letter of the law. Why did he get offended in the first place? If he studies Torah for its own sake, he lives a life of Torah, what is there that he needs to forgive? 
291, right? So here on page, on the end of the Mishnah, page 292, forgiving of insult to himself. Top of the page. He becomes modest, patient, and forgiving of insult. Well, if he's so modest, he doesn't get insulted. If he's so patient, he doesn't get upset. So he's modest and he's patient, but he still gets upset and he has to forgive you. This is not impressive. Now, let's take a closer look. We're talking about a person who studies Torah for its own sake. But the word the Mishnah uses is not study. Kol Everyone who occupies himself with Torah. Why doesn't it simply say studies Torah? You see what I'm saying? Whoever occupies himself with, in parentheses, the study of Torah. But the Hebrew says, whoever occupies himself with Torah. The meaning of that is, there are people who actually study Torah. And it's a study. It's a subject. We're not talking about those people. We're talking about somebody who has gone beyond that. We're talking about somebody for whom the study of Torah is his occupation. What is an occupation? An occupation usually is an obsession. If you run a candy store, it's on your mind 24 hours a day. It's your occupation or preoccupation. It's not something you think about a few hours a day. People who study Torah that way as an occupation, and they do this for the sake of Torah itself, which means certainly not for the money they're going to make from it, much more than that. There are people who study Torah because they want to know. They need to know. They're going to keep Pesach. They're going to make a Seder. Well, you've got to know how. So you open up the book and you study. How do you make a Seder? How do you make your home Pesach day? What is Pesach? What is Matzah? What is not Matzah? You've got to know. So if you study Torah because you need to know how to live and how to perform the mitzvah, that's not Torah for its own sake. That's Torah for the sake of mitzvahs, which has a virtue in, unto itself. <laughs> The ones who study in order to do, that's a virtue. Because what other purpose is there to study other than to do? But there are people who study Torah for the pleasure of being in touch with God. Because it's God's Torah. They love to, to think the way God thinks. Studying Torah, you're thinking the way God thinks. Because these are his thoughts. So they study Torah for its own sake. Now the question could be, if you study Torah for its own sake, how are you going to excel in other areas? Because you might think, if you study Torah for its own sake, you're a little detached from reality, from the, from the world, and you're not really going to be a mensch. You're going to live with your head in the clouds, you're not a mensch. You're holy, but nobody can live with you because you're not a mensch. Maybe you're an angel. 
But it's very hard to live with an angel. No, it's impossible. They don't get married. <laughs> For good reason. So this is why the Mishnah says, the study of Torah for its own sake is a wonderful thing. Are you worried that it's going to leave you wanting in other areas? It won't. And that's the meaning of whoever occupies himself with the study of Torah for its own sake will merit many things. What does it mean, merit? It means he'll get it without working for it. It'll come automatically. So he won't be lacking as a mensch. He will automatically get those virtues from the study of Torah. So this is what the Mishnah is trying to tell us here. However, there are certain virtues which if you don't work at them, there's no way you can have them. If you don't pay attention, it's not going to happen. It can't come as a gift from heaven. So this is why certain things the Mishnah states outright, and other things are qualified. For example, let's read this thing again here. He is called friend, beloved, he loves God, he loves creatures, brings joy to God, he brings joy to men. Now, the Torah garbs him with humility. Well, what does that mean? Why don't you just say he becomes humble? It's because you can't become humble automatically. It's something you've got to pay attention to. This person who is devoted to the study of Torah for its own sake is not paying attention to his humility. He's not working at it. And therefore, the Torah can help, but can't do the whole thing. Therefore, the study of Torah garbs him in humility. But whether he'll actually be humble, he's got to put in a little effort. That's not going to come by itself. So the Torah moves him in that direction, disposes him towards humility. But he's not going to be humble if he doesn't actually pay attention. So that's why the Mishnah says, garbs him in humility. It's not just poetic. It only garbs him. It doesn't make him humble. The next thing is, it makes him fit to be a tzaddik. You notice? It won't make him a tzaddik. It makes him fit to be a tzaddik. But to actually be a tzaddik, he's got to pay attention. What does it mean to be a tzaddik? It means to do every mitzvah that he's supposed to do. Well, <laughs> studying Torah isn't going to exempt him from the other mitzvahs. He's got to pay attention and, and, and apply himself to those things. But the study of Torah moves him in that direction. He's more likely to do that because it makes him fit to be a tzaddik. It puts him in that frame of mind. Also, fit to be a chassid and fit to be upright and faithful. It keeps him far from sin and brings him near meritorious deeds. You see, it doesn't prevent him from sinning. It keeps him far from sin. But if he's not careful, it brings him near to meritorious deeds. But you can be right near it and not do it because you're not paying attention. So the mission is telling the person who is studying Torah for its own sake, 
that there are many virtues, but you still got to pay attention. You can't just study for its own sake. And this explains the most basic question of them all. Who is the Mishnah talking to? If the Mishnah is talking to a person who studies Torah for its own sake, what are you telling him what kind of rewards he's going to get? He's doing it for its own sake. And you're going to ruin it by... T- oh, no, don't do it for its own sake. Look at this list of... <laughs> look at the list of perks you're going to get here. Leave him alone. He's fine. He's studying Torah for its own sake without any ulterior motives. So what are you going to do? Introduce him to ulterior motives? On the other hand, if you're trying to encourage someone to study Torah for its own sake, then what are you contradicting yourself? Say, you know, you really should study for it, Torah for its own sake. You know why? Because, oh, it gives you a lot of benefits. <laughs> then what did you just say? The answer here is, that we're not talking about, ben- about rewards. These are not rewards. On the contrary, these are like reminders of what else you're going to need to do. Now, with this we can understand the wise son in the Haggadah. The wise son asks, what are these mitzvahs, statutes, and laws that God, our God, gave to you? Gave to you. Now, when the wicked son says, what is all this work to you? He reveals his wickedness because he excludes himself. To you, not to me. And that's why we treat him very harshly. Well, here the wise son says, what are these mitzvahs, laws, and statutes to you? Why aren't we critical of him? The answer usually given is because he says, God, our God. So he did include himself. But then he's just confused. (laughs) He's our God, but it's only to you. What's going on here? It must be that when the wise son says, the mitzvahs God gave to you, by saying that, he reveals his wisdom. That's part of his wisdom. The fact that he says, to you. Just like the, the wicked son reveals his wickedness when he says, what, what is this to you? In our generation, in our time, we can, we can understand this in a, very, in a very real, practical way. This question is the question of a son asking his father or his grandfather. So it's a later generation asking the earlier generation. Technically speaking, in the Torah, when Moshe says to the people, tomorrow when your son will ask you these questions, this is what you should answer. So for that generation, the son was born in the desert after the giving of the Torah. And he's asking his father, What are these commandments God gave you before the Torah while you were still in Egypt? Tell me about that because I don't know that. I study Torah, but what was your relationship with God before Mount Sinai? That that is the technical answer to to the wise son's question. But that would only work for that generation. For our generation, it's something like this. To our grandparents, 
whether they were ultra-Orthodox or not, to our grandparents, Torah, mitzvahs, Shabbos, Yom Tov, Judaism was not negotiable. It just was not negotiable. There was no room for questioning, there was no room for arguing, and there certainly was no room for compromise. To us, in our generation, and certainly the younger members of the generation, Judaism is an option. Mitzvahs are an option. If I like, I do. If you convince me, I'll be convinced. If you inspire me, I'll get excited. If not, hey, there are other things to do. I'm busy. Judaism is not unconditional. So even people who become observant, who are observant, who are very observant, but it was an option, and they chose to be observant. Why? They like it. It inspires. It convinces. It moves them. If it, doesn't, if it didn't, then they would have doubts and questions and maybe other options. The wise son today recognizes that his commitment to Judaism is somewhat conditional. I don't mean weak or nebulous or tentative. It's not, but it, it's not unconditional either. So his conviction is firm, but it's his conviction. I'm convinced that it's the truth. Could something convince me otherwise? Theoretically, yes. So the wise son, realizing that to him, Judaism, mitzvahs, Shabbos, Yom Tov, is a choice, marvels at the Judaism of the past generations. And so he asks his grandfather, these commandments that God gave us, I'm keeping them too. But what was it like for you? What did you see in it that made it so unconditional? People who came to America and they couldn't find a job because you had to work on Shabbos, and so they didn't work. It's irrational, and they didn't hesitate. To them, there was no question. Shabbos is Shabbos, and that's the end of it. A Jew is a Jew, and that's the end of it. So the wise son says, it's our mitzvah, it's our God, but what was it like for you? How did you get to a place where it wasn't a matter of deciding? There was no choice. It was non-negotiable. The wicked son, on the other hand, says, why? What is it? Convince me. If you convince me, otherwise I'm not doing it. The wise son is someplace in between. He's doing it because he's convinced. So he's not the wicked son, but he's not like his grandfather either. He's only doing it because he's convinced. His grandfather did it because you don't need to be convinced. A Jew is a Jew. Kosher is kosher, not, not. I think part of the answer, or, or maybe even part of the question, he sees in his ancestors and his grandparents, 
he sees this kind of conviction beyond the letter of the law. It wasn't a question of, do I really have to do this under these circumstances? There was no debate. I'm Jewish and I don't work on Shabbos. That means no job? Then there's no job. Well, don't you think that under these circumstances maybe you could find... I don't want to find. Now, what is the answer to the wise son? If you look in the Haggadah, it's a strange answer. The answer to the wise son is, teach him everything he wants to know. Teach him everything, including the detail that you're not allowed to eat after the afikoman. Now, the afikoman, if you remember, is that last piece of matzah that you cannot swallow because you're full and you think you're finished eating and somebody says, oh, now we've got to eat the afikoman. Oh, no, I can't. In the times of the Paschal lamb, the meat of the sacrifice was eaten at the end of the meal like we eat the afikoman, which means it was eaten after you no longer had any appetite whatsoever. You had to force it down. What is the meaning of that? The meaning of that is you're eating this because it's a mitzvah, not because you're hungry, not because it tastes good, not because you have an appetite for it. You eat it because it's a mitzvah. So when do you eat it? When you no longer have any appetite for anything. On the other hand, after eating the meat of the sacrifice, you're not allowed to eat anything else that night. Why? Because then you would lose the taste of the meat. You would replace it with something else. And you shouldn't do that. The taste of the meat should linger for as long as possible. Now this is a contradiction. You're not supposed to taste it. But on the other hand, don't lose that taste. What taste? Taste is not important. Today we do that with the afikoman. You eat the afikoman, the last piece of matzah, after the whole meal, when you really don't feel like anymore. And then you're not allowed to eat or drink anything after that. Okay, except for the last cup of wine. The fourth cup of wine. And why is that? So that you don't lose the taste. Well, I don't have any taste for this matzah. Appetite's gone. <laughs> so what it means is this. There are mitzvahs that you do because you have a taste for it. You have an appreciation. You have an appetite. It suits you. It's your taste. And then there are mitzvahs you do because it's a mitzvah. It has nothing to do with whether it tastes good to you or not. It's beyond that. The wise son is saying, how is it that in your generation there was no taste? There was no debate there was no pleasing anybody. The law was the law, and that's all there was. Right was right, and wrong was wrong. And there was no question of, does it suit me? It doesn't suit me. I have a taste for it. I don't have a taste for it. I understand it. I don't understand it. It didn't exist. Every mitzvah was an afikoman. It was an objective truth. You do what you got to do because you got to do. And in our generation, 
Everything is a matter of taste. Ah, not my style. I don't feel like. It's not my personality. I'm not in the mood. So, the wise son is saying, I envy you. What did you see in the mitzvahs that made you that way? And how do I get to be that way? The answer given to the wise son is that you're right. There is a great virtue to unquestioned, absolute certainty about what is right and what is wrong and holy and unholy. But there's a reason for your generation as well. Even though you eat the afikoman without any taste, you don't chase that taste away. You savor it. You have to bring together the objective, unquestioned truth with personal feeling. It's hard. It's much easier to be either or. It's either my way or his way, but can't be both. It can be both. The way it can be both is, if you ask, why do I do this mitzvah? The answer, what do you mean why? Because it's a mitzvah. Why is a tree a tree? It's a tree. Why is it a tree? It's a silly question. A mitzvah is a mitzvah. A mitzvah is right. A sin is wrong. That's it. So why? There is no room for, for the why. How? How should I do the mitzvah? Well, got to do it according to your capacity, according to your taste, according to your understanding, according to the way you know best. In other words, how do you do the mitzvah? By bringing your subjective feelings to it. Do it with feeling, not without. Say, oh, is that why I should do it? Because I have a feeling? No. <laughs> That's not why you should do it. You should do it because right is right. But if it is right, shouldn't you have a feeling for it? So now that you know this is the truth and this is right and this is Jewish and this is the way it's always been, that doesn't give you a feeling? But to say, oh, so I'll do it as long as I have a feeling. If I don't have the feeling, I won't do it? No, no, no. If you're a, a father or a mother, you raise your child. You take care of your child. You deal with the child's problems. Are you always in the mood? No. Does it always suit you? No. How many people say, you know, I really, I'm not, I'm not so good at being a mother. I, I, nobody prepared me for this. True. And nobody's asking you either. You do what you got to do, and that's all you do. But now, knowing that this is what you got to do, and this is what you're here for, and this is your mission in life, that doesn't give you a feeling for what you're doing? That doesn't excite you? Then something's wrong. So this is the answer to the wise son. We had only the unquestioned commitment. You have only the subjective options. We've got to bring it together. You've got to eat the afikoman and then not eat anything else after. So you eat the afikoman because you know, you've got to do what you've got to do. But knowing that this is what you've got to do doesn't that give you a feeling? And don't lose that feeling. 
So don't eat anything after the afikomer. So this is what the mission is telling us here. If you study Torah for its own sake, you have no personal investment here at all. It's not about you at all. It's for Torah's sake. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't pay attention and become a little more humble. True, you're now more disposed to being humble. But where's your part of the deal? What's your investment? You got to develop your subjective response to this absolute truth. Then you've got a good deal. And this is not a reward for studying Torah. This is the combination of unconditional love, which means you don't have to feel it, with a love that you feel. How do you have both? You can have both. It's unconditional in terms of why, but it is subjective in terms of how. So when people say, what are you telling me? I just have to do the commandments? Just like that? Because it says so? Yeah. Well, then I don't like it. That is so wrong. If you have to do it because you have to do it, how can you not like that? If it's so real and so important that it just has to be, then how can you not get excited about it? If it was something conditional, yeah, you do it if you want to, do it, don't do it if you don't want to, then there's nothing to get excited about. Because it's, you know, it's like everything else. But if it's different, if it's something that has to be because it's really true, well, that's something to get excited about. And that's why idealistic people get excited when you tell them something that is not negotiable. If you tell them it's negotiable, they're not interested. You say to them, would you like to be more observant? No, I wouldn't. Thank you very much. Not interested. Some kid asked his rabbi uh, to teach him the laws of Shabbat. He wants to know how to observe Shabbat. And the rabbi said, why? He was offended, and he left the room. He said, never mind. <laughs> uh, I'm Jewish. Shabbat is Jewish. I'm asking you to teach me Shabbat. Why? Why do I want to know? I'm not interested anymore. You're the rabbi. You should be telling me. Here I come and I ask you, and you say, why do you want to know? What, what, this is negotiable? If it's negotiable, I'm not interested. So people say, you know, you tell children that they have 613 commandments and they can't do anything, any work on Shabbos, and they can't go shopping, can't watch a movie, can't turn on the radio. They're not going to like it. It's going to turn them off. And the fact is, a lot of kids are turned off, and they drop out of Judaism. And what do they do? They join some Indian cult where they can't speak at all for about 40 years, where they can't own any property. They have, to turn their, they have to turn their credit cards over to the guru, and they have to speak in a language they don't understand and sleep on the floor, and that they love. You see what you just did? 
they're not looking for a negotiable way of life. They want to know what's not negotiable. And then they'll handle it. Because if it is negotiable, then it's not interesting. Everything's negotiable. So why is this any better than anything else? That which is true and real should not be negotiable. You can't negotiate reality. Like somebody said, are the laws of Torah as strict as the laws of the, go- of the country? And the rabbi said, no, it's as strict as the laws of gravity. <laughs> the laws of a country you can negotiate. You can make amendments, even to the Constitution. The laws of Torah are like the laws of gravity. You can't negotiate with gravity. That's why it's impressive. If you can negotiate, then, well, then, then, then it's not exciting. So the wise son says to his grandfather, how did you get to a truth that is not negotiable? And the grandfather says, I had that. Now you have a very subjective response to everything. If we could bring that together, a subjective response to a non-negotiable truth, that would be perfect. That would be the high point of the Seder. You hear these stories about people in Europe in the most difficult times. And the way the stories are told are a little, a little off target. People in concentration camps who wouldn't eat some non-kosher product even though they were literally starving. They wouldn't eat it. And the others there who were more knowledgeable told them that they're allowed to eat it and in a time of danger you're allowed to eat. No. They were not going to compromise even where it was kosher to compromise. Where did they get that from? So people telling the story say they loved their Judaism so much that they would... No, no, that's not correct. Not correct. Children who gave up their lives to save their parents. Oh, it's because they love their parents. No, not correct. Love does not motivate such behavior. They gave up their lives in exchange for their parents because there was nothing else to do. It wasn't a matter of how much do you love your parents. It's not a matter of love. It's a matter of absolute, unconditional rightness. This is what you do. Otherwise, love would never make you do it. It's like the concept of martyrdom. People who refuse to bow to the idol or to convert to some other religion, it's because they loved the Torah. No. Not correct. No matter how much you love Torah, you don't die for it. You don't die for what you love. I mean, people do. But that's not martyrdom. That's Self-indulgence.
and a person says, I don't want to live this way. That's martyrdom? You're not giving up anything. You refuse to give up. That's not martyrdom. Martyrdom means that you cannot bow to the idol even though you wish you could. Even though you don't particularly love Judaism. And it hasn't been a picnic being Jewish. And it's not a picnic now. Because they're torturing you. And you don't do it. Not because you love Judaism. Or because you hate the idol. You do it because there is no choice. There is no choice. So what does it mean to say to a Jew, well, how about, uh, how about if you uh, stop being Jewish? It, it doesn't compute. <laughs> what do you mean stop being Jewish? What does that mean? A Jew is a Jew. What do you mean not be? So when they said convert or die, it didn't really give them a choice. It's, like, it's two impossibilities. Which do you choose? I don't choose. That's called martyrdom. But if I say, let me, let me think about this here. Convert or die. Die or convert. Uh, I, I think I'll die. That's suicide, not martyrdom. You see, you see the difference? If it's negotiable, then why are you dying? Because you want to? That's sick. You'd rather die? That's not healthy. You should see somebody professionally. You know, you've, got, you've got a death wish or something. Martyrdom doesn't mean you choose to die. That's a terrible thing to do. Martyrdom means you're not giving me a choice. What, die or die? <laughs> what is that? And so I, I, I have no choice. Leave me alone. That's called martyrdom. So if you ask a guy being burnt at the stake, wouldn't you rather really convert? He says, yes. <laughs> but a Jew is a Jew. And these two Jews are sitting around saying, look at all the money these people are making in the casinos. This is great. We've got to open a casino. The other one says... Only Indians can run casinos. He says, all right, let's convert. <laughs> we'll convert. <laughs> you can't become an Indian. Why not? Can't we convert? No. An Indian's an Indian. A non-Indian is not. So I'm Jewish. All right, but uh, okay, I'll stop. No, no, you... You can't stop. You can make believe you stopped, then you're a Marano. You're neither here nor there. You're kind of stuck. But, but convert? A Jew is a Jew. So what, what option are you giving me here? Either become an Indian or die. <laughs> Thank you very much for the options. That's, that's called martyrdom. And for some reason, all of our ancestors had that attitude. Maybe not for every mitzvah, 
Maybe if they had a non-kosher sandwich and they were starving, maybe they would eat it. But they would not convert. They would not hide the fact that they're Jewish. They would not work on Yom Kippur. I mean, you know, the, the Hank Greenberg story and the Sandy Koufax story, these are not people who are ultra-Orthodox. So what is it about Yom Kippur? They liked Yom Kippur? No, they didn't. What's to like about it? All you get to do is fast. Pesach you can like. I mean, after the cleaning. Hanukkah you can enjoy. What's to enjoy about Yom Kippur? So why would they not play on Yom Kippur? Because, oh, I love Yom Kippur so No, that's ridiculous. It had nothing to do with loving Yom Kippur. It was Yom Kippur, and that's it. And you don't play on Yom Kippur. What do you mean you don't? You don't. Oh, are you orthodox? I'm not talking about me. Why are you talking about me? I'm talking about Yom Kippur. You don't work on Yom Kippur. Oh, have you become orthodox? Why do you keep talking about me? It's not about me. It's Yom Kippur. For a more traditional Jew, every mitzvah is that way. It's Shabbos. Don't work on Shabbos. Oh, you're orthodox? Am I? No, it's Shabbos. You know, when a child says, I can't lie. And his friend says, Oh, really? Since when are you such a perfect... It's not about me being perfect. Lie is wrong. Don't change the subject. Well, look who's being so righteous now. It's not about me. It's about it. It is wrong. Even if I'm also wrong. I'm no tzaddik either. But it is wrong. That was, that was what our grandparents had. And we need it. We need it. We need to be able to say to a child, unconditional, non-negotiable, you cannot lie. You cannot disrespect your parents. Why? Because a tree is a tree. Gravity is gravity. And that's what would give us an excitement in life. And that taste we don't want to lose. That kind of an innocence. The ability to accept the fact as a fact. Without it, we're tortured people. You're walking down the street and the kid says, why is that tree there? I'm talking about a three-year-old. Why is that tree there? You say, wow, that's a good question. Who put the tree there? Why is it there? And what purpose is there? But you don't know. <laughs> so you say, uh, God put it there. The kid says, oh. That's enviable. Tree is there because God put it there. Isn't, isn't that the truth? And what could be more satisfying than, than that? So the wise son really is wise. And when he gets his answer, he's even wiser.